Hi folks, Wooden Boat Dan here. Just wanted to give you a heads up. The podcast you're about to listen to was recorded several years ago. So some of the phone numbers, email addresses, website, links, and time-sensitive information are no longer valid. Please keep that in mind as you listen. If you'd like to contact me, my email address is woodenboatdan at gmail.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Hooked on Wooden Boats weekly podcast episode number 58. I am your host, Dan the Man Matson. If you can't do it, nobody can in the wooden boat world. And this is the world's first podcast fully dedicated to celebrating the art, craft, history, tradition, and romance. You knew it was coming, folks. Don't forget the romance of wooden boats all over the world. Welcome to episode 58 today, folks. It's great to have you. We've got an action-packed podcast today. I love podcasts. You know, you can listen to them in your car. You don't have to be sitting in front of a video screen or your computer. And if you're commuting like I do, you get some entertainment along the way. So that's the cool thing about a podcast. Today's featured segment is an interview with Casey Cronkite of Port Townsend, Washington. Casey owns a 28-foot Spitzgatter a Danish double-ended sailing boat that was built in 1936. And she's been restoring that boat. And Casey also was the festival director for the Port Townsend Wooden Boat Festival for 10 years running uh, that completed in 2011. And today's interview is an in-depth conversation with Casey about how she got into boating, where she grew up, Uh, her love of the water, some of the sailing adventures she's been on, and some really fun stuff. So stick around for the interview. I think you're going to like it. I would like to give a shout-out to two new subscribers this week, Ned Flanagan. Ned, thanks for subscribing to the podcast newsletter. And Oleg Matosian. Thank you, Oleg, for signing up also. If you want to subscribe to my monthly newsletter, Go to hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash subscribe and provide your first and last name, your email address, your address, your birth date. No, you don't have to supply that. (laughs) First and last name and email address is all I need. And you'll get the monthly newsletter that I send out, which is kind of fun. And I got also from Oleg a note when he signed up. He said, thanks, Dan. I have been listening to your podcast since the beginning, and you finally talked me into building a boat. I purchased plans for a Glen L. Squirt, which will be my nine-year-old son's boat. Thanks, and keep up the good work. That is really cool. I love it when people write to me and say, because of your podcast, I've started building a boat. I just think that is awesome. I hope it goes really well, Oleg. I did look up on the internet the Glen L. Squirt which is a short runabout, really sweet-looking boat. looks to me like it's maybe 10 or 12 feet long because I had a little outboard on it. It should be an absolute blast. I hope that project goes well, and uh, please send pictures and give me updates as you work on that boat. I'd really appreciate it. We're going to move on to the interview today with Casey. It's an hour and 10 minutes long, so we're going to get it rolling right away. So, Casey, take it away. 
It is October 5th, 2012. I am sitting on the PAX Spitzgatter with Casey Cronkite. Casey, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Good to have you here. And then we have Freya Finwood in the background here taking photos. (laughs) So that's pretty cool. Thanks, Freya. And she's going to be writing about this on her blog, too, which will be pretty fun. That's awesome. Both of you, what you're doing. Yeah, and so we'll put links in the show notes to that. So, uh, Casey, let's start with your... Talk about a little bit about your childhood, your zero to 18 years, where you were and what you were up to, and if there was any boating in that time. There was a ski boat okay. in there, and uh, it's pretty <clears throat> funny. There are pictures of my—I I grew up on a cattle ranch in Oklahoma. Okay. Uh, unbeknownst to me, the bottom of an inland sea two mil- 200 million years ago, that was actually the—, the uh, a lot of what's Texas and Oklahoma and New Mexico was actually at the bottom of a of a huge inlet of the ocean, of ocean water, and that's one of the reasons why Oklahoma and that region has so much natural gas and oil is because that is the was the lowest point in an in an ocean, and so when as the Rockies pushed up with the plate tectonics, it emptied the water out, and the very last area that emptied out was right in the canyon area that I grew up in. It's a really unique, uh, different landscape than most of the rest of Oklahoma. Um, Oklahoma has five different ecosystems, but um, this area where I grew up is Red Canyon and looks more like uh, the mesas of New Mexico than what the flat plains of central Oklahoma that a lot of people associate with Kansas and the rolling wheat fields and plains. So I grew up on a cattle ranch there um, adjacent to a state park that my grandfather helped start um, when the CCC and WPA were begun um, after the depression he had in the 20s started a state park there, a resort or not a state park, a private resort and uh, wanting to diversify what they were doing with farming and ranching and using his geology degree, he was fascinated by that area and um, but the depression hit and he couldn't do it, and Roosevelt started the National Park State Park System, and that became one of the first six state parks in Oklahoma. So I grew up in a place where, even though there wasn't boating, there was water, there was an awareness of uh, the geology of different places in the world than than just the wheat-filled side of our ranch. And, um, so were there lakes and rivers? Lakes there, and Casey? rivers. Okay. Yeah, there are lakes within 20 minutes. There's a great ski lake, and that's where why we had a boat. We had a little, um, you know, I don't know the the brand. It all it seems like to me it was almost a it was a little Chris Craft, but it was a real cute little fast speed boat, and we water skied behind it. And my parents had that when I was born. So very so that early would have been as a, a wood kid. Boat. It was, it was a fiberglass boat. Oh, it was fiberglass. 60s. Okay, okay, early 60s. Yeah, so it was an early 60s um, boat and, uh, you know, little chrome details. And I would love to know what the engine was because it's it definitely, you know, one of those old classic gasoline engines. So, but, but beyond that, you know, the whole notion of, I grew up with pioneers, so the, the concept of prairie schooners and sort of travel... Uh, you know, going beyond the horizon, adventuring was a part of my family story for five generations that I lived with and around. 
What do you mean by a prairie schooner, Casey? The prairie schooners are what they called the, the wagons that took the settlers west. Oh, okay. And uh, many, especially people who had come over on the ocean, and my ancestors were Dutch on both sides of my family, so they had definitely come across. They were boating people. In fact, when I first visited the Netherlands as a um, in my 20s or 30s, I guess it was 30s, um, I was, you know, I had tried to figure out why this sailing connected with me at such a core level. Why in the world, from where I'd come, did this did this resonate somehow? And and there I saw people checking cattle in boats, you know, because of the dike system and the way their fields are set up, and because of the, you know, the long time uh, tradition of of dairy and especially dairy farming. There, um, they literally have their fields with their Holstein cattle. Um, which are called Frisian, and that Frisian area is where I was, where my ancestors were from. Interestingly, wow. the first ancestor, male ancestor of mine in this country, was a shipbuilder. Though so he worked for the Dutch East Indies Company as a shipbuilder on and the East Coast, right? came to New Amsterdam, Brooklyn, New York, um, as a shipbuilder, and that was when our, con- you know, in the early days, that was one of the early focuses of American. Um, industry was to build a navy and so in, in building homes and and uh, so that those carpentry skills and those shipbuilding skills were part of that early American history so they they came over here for that reason and I I didn't know that as a kid growing up I knew my life as a cattle ranch cattle rancher kid um, and a pioneer but I didn't realize the connection to boats it was later when I was almost 30 that I first had a sailboat experience and and when I stepped on board a boat and it rocked it reminded me of getting on a horse and the buoyancy the the centering of your gravity and the way your body your knees flex and your body shifts to the center um, completely felt like riding a horse to me and the wind blowing in my hair and then because I grew up on a farm something broke on the boat that day and it was literally sailing out of boat haven here out to maristone island and back something broke on the boat i was on and i knew how to fix it i didn't know what turnbuckles were uh, on boats or clevis pins and i didn't have the same exact terms for them but i had hitched up trailers and we had stretched fences and tightened uh wires on gates with turnbuckles. Um, I don't think we called them that. I don't remember so what we called them. mechanically you were doing the but same thing. But mechanically I was doing the same things. Interesting. And so even though the 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 medium was different, the boat... Hey, good morning. Good. I, I didn't... Um, it wasn't a horse, but no kidding, every woman I've talked to that is loves boating... If they also loved horseback riding as a kid or resonate with that, the, the connection makes a big difference in the way they feel comfortable on a boat. Because that centering, you know, you have to, with a horse, you can kind of sense where they're going to go. They're never going to jump six feet away from out from under you. But they are going to move within a certain distance. And that's what your body has to be ready for. So the way you, where you put your center of gravity and where your, how your knees are bent and how your body, your back, how your organs relax and prepare for that and sense it is the same on a horse as it is on a boat. And uh, by 
visualizing that, it may it has helped some women who sailed with us on the circumnavigation. Um, I wouldn't say it's cured seasickness, but it certainly um, made an impact on their feelings of fear of sort of understanding it better and relating it to something besides just a scary boat experience mm-hmm. so that they could um, kind of shift their focus a bit and that and I do think that that for those whose ears inner ear works okay um, that helps yeah, yeah it helps yeah. to uh, allay seasickness yeah so uh, so zero to eighteen, you were in Oklahoma, yep. and you did some boating, basically some water skiing. Very little. Very but little, but little, you do run horses a lot. It sounds like horses a lot. Horses a lot. Almost every day yeah. in the summer. And you you'd never been to the ocean at that point. No, nope, I had never been to the ocean yeah. before that. Okay, so then tell me when you uh, were you eighteen when you left home or nineteen or out there? I went to college when I was uh, I, I graduated a little bit. I was a little young for my class, and I went to college. Did four years at in Tulsa, and then on a trip uh, with friends during spring. Can I ask break, what you studied, Casey? I'm curious. Uh, I did business management and marketing, but oh. I actually started in computer science. <clears throat> I shifted to commercial art. I changed to psychology and history, and then ended up in business management. <laughs> and uh, so I always tell my my nieces and nephews, I'm like, it didn't really matter. Just get started doing something, yeah. and. Uh, and then finish. Don't just keep dragging it out. Wrap it into something because the bachelor's isn't going to dictate what you do the rest of your life. It, 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 it's, it's been good for me. I'm glad I finished a bachelor's. Other people, you know, do their route differently as far as education goes. But yeah. just to not be in debt, you know, by dragging it out forever and trying to find the perfect thing in a college, it's like, no, just get something from college and go do. Because I... To, find that if we do then it brings makes the educational education practical yeah so you were in Tulsa for four years and then what did you do after yeah I I then went to work for the university that I worked for uh, that I had gone to school in as their lead traveling recruiter so travel was what I did basically and talked to prospective university students and then I did that for a year and then I went to work for a publishing company in Iowa and their clients were small private liberal arts colleges and this was in the early days of what's now you know commonplace of the direct mail barrage that you get when you take the SAT but we were in the early days of that in the seven in the early 80s and the the they had a Heidelberg press and the the full department of writers photographers uh, graphic designers the presses were there, the bindery was there, the shipping was there. So it was this full-service um, publishing company, uh, family-owned, and I was working in a, with four other people selling to small private universities. That led in another year and a half to a, to a job in Alaska, and that was at one of the universities. So I went back into university admissions in Anchorage Uh yeah it was the school was called Alaska Pacific University it was the only and still is the only private four-year so now you're really close to the ocean in Anchorage then I was close to the ocean but it is that ocean that's you know Cook Inlet Mm. which is I think second only to um I can't remember the name of it but the um it's the, the tide changes 30 feet there it's 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 unbelievably it's well, I don't know if you've been up there but it's that you, you'll see mud flats for tens of miles and yeah. 
um, and those riptides that stand six feet high as they come back in. And, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very dramatic, for me, uninviting I, landscape as far as boating. I, I did go out fishing a couple of times with friends, halibut and salmon fishing. I did go um, on some kayak trips. And so I did a little bit of boating there, but again, it wasn't it wasn't nearly as um, as extreme as what happened later when I finally got on a ocean-going sailboat, had that connection, and then it led to the job with working with Nancy Early on on yeah. Tethys. So uh, give us some more details of that next phase. So you were in Anchorage for a few years, and then yeah, I was in Anchorage then... almost a decade. Wow. Um, I was in while there. I got a master's in social sciences and um, worked for a nonprofit called Alaska Geographic Society. I worked for a, a social and marketing research company called Creation and Associates, a fantastic company up there. Um, really innovative, edgy uh, work, and I was the director of qualitative research. So it sort of combined my um, research, my love of research and writing and um, Understanding people, and um, with a with an opportunities to be in nature, and that kind of combination of people and being outside, uh, and and then research and writing have always been sort of parts of my work life and and personal life. Um, when I came down to, uh, I was working at that research company, and we finished a huge research project, and. One of my colleagues was an anthropologist, and she and her husband had their boat down here in Port Townsend. And uh, in writing the final reports, I would send her by fax, because we were still doing things by fax. You know, Word wasn't as cool as its edit tool now and all of that, so we were still faxing reports back and forth to each other. We were using computers to correct them, but it was a little more cumbersome. And I was writing back and forth with, faxing back and forth with her to Port Townsend, and and we finished. And so we were all just thrilled. This had been a a year-long project. Was huge project for the Anchorage School or for the Alaska School System, and uh, called Project Two Thousand. And um, uh, I, she said, she and her husband were going to go sailing that weekend. And I said, Wow, I've always wanted to do that. She said, Well, fly down. In those days, you could hop on Alaska Airlines for a hundred bucks from Anchorage and get to either Honolulu <laughs> or Seattle. And most of us did that a in lot. Three hours. That's how you survive living in Alaska through the winter. So, uh, is go out and get your green fix or your sun fix, and uh, the green fix was Seattle, and so I was used to doing that. So I hopped on a, hopped on a plane, came down, and she and her husband had a little, you know, I knew nothing about sailboats. So, even the funny thing of walking down the dock, and the dock in those days, um, these docks now are a little heavier. There was some old wooden docks that used to be over here where the new A dock set up is here at Boat Haven here at Boat Haven yeah. and, and and those docks moved more so from the minute I started walking on the docks I felt that movement under me that kind of started what I mentioned as the connection to horses yeah and uh, and then of course throwing my leg over the lifeline I mean it was you know it was just this weird subliminal becoming conscious awareness that this was kind of like a horse and, uh, and then I, you know, proceeded to get out of the way because they were training two new crew um, that were going to go to the South Pacific with them on an anthropological mission. So I, my job really was just, I, I got to go sailing with them, but I really needed to stay out of the way. So I did. I, 
hunkered down in the companionway here and while they got the boat going and out of the marina and out and hoisted sails. And then once out there, about halfway across the bay, uh, her husband said, would you take the tiller? And I said, oh, I, I wouldn't have a clue what to do. I, I, and he said, oh, just keep the wind in your sails and head for that point. And it was Maristone Point. And then he disappeared. He left and went up on the foredeck because they were training this crew. They had no winches on that boat. And what kind Malay of boat was pins. that, Casey? It was now, I know, but of course I had no clue then. It was an Atkins Eric Jr. And it was built of ferro cement. Um, funny, it used to be owned, I think, by Kiwi of Edensaw. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, I met he and uh, Almond the, that year as well. So, um, so I, so he said what he said well here I am in this cockpit so I had you know the tiller had been in the middle so that's where I just kept it and you know it was a gaff rigged boat with a staysail a club footed staysail with a horse up there that it you know with the block would self tack uh-huh. oh, nice. and, a, and a hanked on jib out on a six foot bowsprit so I knew none of those terms of course at that time so I get this tiller and <clears throat> And I'm just holding it steady in the middle, and and the boat, it feels different. And like the horse analogy I was describing, I could feel that something was different, but I didn't know what to do, and I didn't know why. And uh, all of a sudden, the that club-footed staysail had this big, heavy wooden block on it and steel horse that it's sliding back on. And so it starts rattling and making noise, and... And then the boom is just above my head, starts to move and <laughs> pop and bounce a little bit. And, and the boat's, like, really uneven in its, in its motion. And uh, they all start yelling at me, including the two young people that were training to go with them, fall off, fall off. And like, I'm, you know, hello? back what? to the horse thing. I grew up on horses. That oh. You never fall off. I mean, I, I had no idea <laughs> what they were. stay on the I horse. I had no idea. And I had n- that, those words were especially unhelpful to me. So long story short, the gal came back, pulled the tiller over. I felt for the first time that feeling that you get when the boat, when the sails fill. So the, it quieted down. The boat had a, leaned a little bit and surged forward a little bit, and I could feel that. The winds weren't strong that day. They were strong enough to keep that gaff rig, and I'll call it now a pig of a boat, going forward. But it wasn't really, um, it wasn't as profound as if I would have been in a T-bird or something, you know, or a little opti or something like that. But it, but it was, yeah. so it was enough wind. Yeah. So I felt that. So that was the first time I ever felt that, and I was like, Wow, and and so that that weekend sort of changed my life. There's something happened transformationally inside. I didn't know what it was, but something seemed really familiar. I I, I was extremely unhappy then when I went back to Anchorage. I like something needed to change. What I, year was that, Casey? Uh, it was, you know, I'd have to. I was thirty or thirty-one, and I'm fifty, fifty-one now. So I'm. About so 20 years, 20 years ago. ago and um 92 yeah 92 that'd be that'd be right and uh literally by the by the end of that year um and that was in march i think or may uh probably march um by the end of that year i had decided to pursue a phd i was going to find out what had happened i wanted an interdisciplinary program in psych and outdoor studies and nature I looked in nature poetry and deep ecology and 
maritime history and trying to put together, I, I thought, why, what in the world happened to me? I, how could I, this be familiar? How could, and, and feel like such bliss? I mean, I felt so uh, familiar and happy there. And, uh, and it seemed so foreign initially to me from my Oklahoma life. And uh, so, so I moved to Hawaii um, to be closer to a place where I could, uh, I knew friends, I had met friends there. Um, this couple went on to go to Santa Cruz Island, Solomon's, and then, uh, but on the way, they stopped in Hawaii and they were hit by Hurricane Aniki. So it was 92, because that was September 92. And they were dismasted. And some people from Port Townsend actually went down to help them in the Nuiulawili Harbor there. And when I was on Christmas vacation, I went and stayed on their boat and did my first overnight passage with them across to Oahu. Oh. So they, as, as, and it was after that, so after that Christmas, then I moved to Hawaii um, and decided to pursue the, the PhD. So um, there's a school in Cincinnati that's sort of the doctoral level f- that Antioch College is and Semester at Sea, College Without Walls. Um, called Union Institute, and they allowed me to choose faculty that were intercultural, interdisciplinary. Um, in Cincinnati, Ohio? Yeah. Okay. So it's it's located in Cincinnati, but the <clears throat> faculty are all over the country, hmm. um, and you pick two of your own faculty. So one of mine was with University of Montreal, and one was in Hawaii, University of Hawaii Hilo. So um, I began pursuing this degree which was in gender and cultural studies, ended up in gender and cultural studies, uh, focused on women in the Pacific, because I, you know, doctoral degrees, they get, you know, they want, I wanted to answer everything, and they kept, thankfully, narrowing me more and more. In the course of that, I needed an extra, I needed some other consultants on the project, and so Hossie's a good friend of mine, had been for decades. Carol Hossie. Carol Hossie. Four towns in sales. Yep. Yep. And, uh, I called her and said, I need, I need somebody. I need to find somebody who's, who really knows ocean sailing, who knows the Pacific. Ideally, they'd have a doctorate degree. Uh, I need some, you know, a little more of the sailing side. I had excellent writers and multicultural people on my um, committee, faculty-wise, but I, didn't, I needed that boating piece. And uh, she said, well, this one woman just got back from a circumnavigation, and she's getting a lot of press and talking to a lot of people down in Seattle. So let me think. I've got a few people I can think of. Let me get, let me round up their names and addresses. And uh, meanwhile, here's her number, because I just talked to her yesterday. Give her a call. And that was Nancy Early. So I called Nancy, who happened to be coming to Hawaii within the next three months. So I actually interviewed Nancy for my research project. Fast forward to almost a year. Um, the woman and man I'd sailed with decided to get divorced, and in the, they were still going to do research together, but to not stay married. And part of their deal in breaking up was the separation of the sharing of the boat. So the boat was in Australia, and she got to have the boat now, which meant bringing it back to Hawaii. So all upwind, knowing nothing about what that really meant. Um, I said, she said, "Would you want to sail back with me?" And I went, well, sure. So I hopped aboard. This was aboard. Nancy? 
No, this was with a woman named uh, Dr. Mimi George. Oh, okay. A cultural anthropologist who was doing a lot of research in the Pacific with, and, and with, she had been in Papua New Guinea in her doctoral original research, but uh, really looking at women's spirituality and things. So, um, so I went and I sailed back with her for six months, just the two of us on that gaff rigged boat that I had first sailed on. Dunking under the water uh, on the bowsprit in the Tasman. My first postcard from New Zealand sent to Nancy and 30 other women who I had interviewed just to give them an update on my research and what I was doing, which, by the way, this experience sailing myself was part became part of my dissertation. You know, part of what was going on for me was part of what I was basing questions on that I was asking other people, other women. So... Uh, and we met women in the islands who were either native all-women crews, fishing crews, or in anthropological or maritime history, you know, citations in, in Cook's journal of a, a woman uh, in charge of the Heiau on Oahu, or on Kauai the first time that he stopped in there. Um, they're just side notes because they didn't know what to do with it. it you know, it didn't fit the British... It, it didn't fit the norm, and so they didn't know as men how to interact with this woman like they did a chief man. So this, it, but there's mention of these women in maritime history. So what my dissertation was doing was pulling out some of this research from other records and um, trying to fold it into the to the final project. So we uh, so. I sent this postcard, and it said, Arrived New Zealand, 19-day passage, 10 days hove to, all well on board. 10 days hove to? So, people who aren't sailors don't really get what that says. (laughs) We did not have a life raft. We had an old West Marine dinghy rolled up on deck. We did not have... We had a GPS that we turned on once a day to double-check our dead red reckoning, but that was all. There was one 12-volt battery. She started her engine by cranking it. It was an old Saab, 10-horse, single-cylinder, uh, you know, the Bergen-Norway, cool, D- old, heavy engines. Diesel? diesel? Yeah. yeah. But she could turn the flywheel and to start flip it. the valve and start it. <laughs> so we didn't have much in the way of battery power. All our water and fuel was stored in uh, five-gallon jugs that we had scavenged from a liquor store in in New Zealand. Um, to to and, and they just filled the cabin sole, and we laid cushions on top of them to sleep. I mean, it was so oh, wow. so so rustic. And uh, when I look back now, I think you know, if my niece came to me and said, "I have this opportunity to go sail across the ocean," and if she told me what this boat if she described the boat I was on, I would say, no, don't go, you know. And thank God my mom didn't really uh, know. And neither did I at What the length time. was that boat? 32 on deck. It was uh, the six-foot bowsprit and a boomkin, so it was a little longer than that. This was the ferro cement boat. The ferro cement boat with a big yin-yang sign painted. I mean, half black and half white with the yin-yang in the, in the joint. I mean... If you've ever seen the boat, you would never forget it. And a lot of old towns and people know the boat. What's the name of the boat? And um, it's Griffin. Griffin. Yeah. So, and it's not painted like that anymore. I think it's white. 
but um, last picture I saw of it anyway. But the uh, so it was an incredible sailing opportunity. I, I got the chance from New Zealand. We went up to Cook Islands, for example, and I got to meet Nancy Griffith. She and her husband uh, Bob sailed around the world three times. They are, are before. Uh, I mean, they are out there as some of the earliest ocean circumnavigators. Blue water. They, they have blue water. Uh, there's a couple of books they've written. Hmm. Um, she, at the time I met her, was owned a trading ship that was engine was captain of that and owned the boat and was doing inner island trading in the Cook Islands. Um, like I said, we we met women paddlers, women fishing boat captains. Uh, Islanders. Um, it was an incredible time. And then when I finished the circumnavigation, uh, I was finished, or I mean, the, the that long passage, we went from New Zealand, uh, Australia, New Zealand, New Zealand, the Cooks, Cooks to Raiatea in Tahiti, near Tahiti, and then up to Hawaii. And by the time I got back there, Nancy Early had decided that the winters were too cold and she wanted to start a business teaching women to sail. So she was going to do just loops in the circles in the Pacific, and I joined on for two of those legs as her first mate. From Hawaii? From Hawaii. Yeah. And uh, so I literally had a week at home in on Kauai after six months of sailing upwind before I flew back to Tahiti, joined her and Tethys, and we uh, did the first, we had the first two clients. They had done the first leg from Port Townsend, Seattle, Port Townsend, uh, to Marquesas and then into Tahiti and then I joined her in Tahiti to go back to Marquesas um, and then we did two Motus as well and then from Tahiti up to Hawaii and that was supposed to be the end of my time on Tethys. She was going to go across to California. Tethys is the name of the boat? Tethys is the name of the Nancy's boat that boat. Nancy has, yeah, and yeah. it's actually right over there. Oh really? It's here in Boathaven now. What kind of boat is that? It's called an orca. It was built here. It's a fiberglass boat that. Sorry, this is hooked on wooden boats. That's okay. We're not we, on we wooden talk boats about yet. Fiberglass I mean, I did. I did cement and fiberglass. <laughs> I'll have before, to edit all the fiberglass words out. No, I'm just before kidding. Before coming to wood, I mean, I went backwards from what most people do. You oh, know, most people, you know, learn to sail in a little dinghy, or they start with wooden boats when they're kids. I did. I did none of that. I, I went yeah. completely backwards. Um, so. Yeah, so I ended up. Uh, Nancy said, "Would you, would you consider signing on for the whole year?" Well, I was full on into my degree studies by then, and this was going really well. And now I'm not only having the chance to interview—I mean, have the experience myself with a woman captain—but I'm also getting a chance to be with two women learning crew each voyage. So my research with women in boating and sailing and what that psychologically was about. Um, couldn't have been richer. I mean, it was an incredible opportunity. Um, I mean, really, a, nobody in the world was doing anything like I was doing. At the time, I had the best list in the world. I was corresponding with the only other two women in the world that were doing research like this, in, in one in Rochester, New York, and the other in Australia. And um, uh, it, so it couldn't have been better timing for me that way. Um, and Nancy was just going to do the Pacific. So we did California, the all the Pacific Mexican ports, or many of the you know the major ones, um, down Guatemala, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, um, Panama. I hopped on a boat in Panama because Nancy wasn't going to go through the canal again ever. So I hopped on a powerboat with some friends and went down and did the P- 
Panama Canal about three times, line handling, and then took a bus back up north to Golfito, Costa Rica. We went out to Galapagos. Wow. Marquesas to Amotos, Tahiti, and it was in Tahiti that second time, which was my third time um, that year, um, said, Nancy said, I hate going upwind. And I said, well, why don't you sail around the world again? And she said, would you agree to do that with me? As a, and I said, well, I just need to tell my mom, unplug my phone and tell my mom where I'm going. And literally uh, within a few weeks, I had unplugged and packed everything in Hawaii and moved on board Tethys, and we began what became a six-year circumnavigation then. And over the course, we taught 34 different women aboard, um, mostly on ocean passages, but a few places like South Africa's coast and the Great Barrier Reef, where we would have women on for coastal uh, situations. But... um, yeah, so I, I that did. That was on Tethys, and it was a six-year circumnavigation. You would train women along the way kind of yeah. thing? Yeah. Nancy, yeah. because she had sailed around the world already with an all-woman crew, um, of which she was the only one who did the whole trip, the other co-owners um, were more investors and part-time vacation. You know, like they wanted to dive in the Red Sea, or they wanted to be in Tahiti at Christmas or something like that, um, which wouldn't really work. You'd want to go to Tahiti in July, but New Zealand for Christmas. So, but, but the, um, she, because of that credibility and because of her skills in owning the boat now, she had bought out the other woman owners. Um, it was a way for her to, um, have a business and also do what she loved. And so we, so we did that. So I was her full-time first mate. And then for a month, a year, she would go back to the States I would be captain of the boat during that time and usually do some kind of icky project, you know, where you're cleaning out all the bins and repainting or, you know, something where you need the boat torn up for a month, um, some big engine thing or some big haul-out project. Um, so um, so I got to work and sail around the world. What year did you finish that, Casey? We finished in August 2001. Okay. We finished at Point Hudson crazy as it seemed to me at the time. I mean, I made a circle, not only of the world, but I made a circle back to the first place I had ever gotten aboard a sailboat. Yeah, for those listening, Port Point Hudson is in Port Townsend, Washington. Yes. Where you started sailing, basically. It is. The two ports in Port Townsend are Boat Haven and Point Hudson. And we're sitting in Boat Haven right now, and that's where I got on the boat But uh, that first time. But we sailed out to the Maristone Island and also stopped in Point Hudson. So it, Point Hudson finishing in, you know, coming through Admiralty Inlet, Port Townsend Bay, sailing in, not only completed a circle of the world for me, but a circle of my sailing life. And at that time, I didn't intend to ever live here. I didn't think I'd ever live in the main 48 states. I didn't feel like I fit in necessarily. Um, I didn't really want to fit in Uh to a lot of what I, what what America had <clears throat> changed into as far as the commercial side, you know, the the shopping malls and the you know, just a lot of things that were really different. I grew up on a farm. I, it was not a, it was not a, you know, shopping wasn't what I lived for and doing things in the city. So the urbanization of America was not uh, a very good fit for me. Port Townsend, as you know, is different and. Um, some people say really different, yeah. and uh, you know, and but 
uh, August 2001, I, I really expected I would get on another boat and sail away. Um, we were up in the Gulf Islands of Canada, and uh, the Wooden Boat Festival was happening. And Nancy said... In Victoria? Had, the one in Victoria? No, oh, the one in Victoria, the, but also the one, the one in Port Townsend. Townsend. Yeah. And I had heard about this. People had brought me T-shirts over the years from Port Townsend because we'd get little gift packages from Hossie, for example with music from America and a couple of t-shirts, you know, that we'd have on board. And so even though I hadn't been back to Port Townsend since 92, I I had, um, we had friends here because Tethys was built in Port Townsend by Joe Breskin. And it was rigged by Brian Toss. It had Hossie sails. It had Port Townsend foundry bronze with <laughs> Pete Langley. I mean, it was, it was such a Port Townsend boat. Yeah. And uh, so... The uh, so we um, came down to the Wooden Boat Festival and stayed with a friend and uh, that was September eighth, ninth, and tenth, two thousand one. The morning of September eleventh, I got up to go get on PS Express to go back across the border to the boat, and we all know what happened that morning. And literally, as I was, I, my bags were packed. I was waiting for Jan to. Um, take me down to PS Express and she had taken her daughter to, to school and Brittany said mom I think you need to listen to the radio something's happening in New York and my brother had moved to Manhattan two weeks earlier oh, and wow. his postcard said I live across the street from the World Trade Center so it was the towers of course and so there were n- n- you know all the reasons all of us felt what we felt and know where we were that day that happened um uh i we literally turned on the television as the first tower went down and i tried to call my brother and he wouldn't his phone you know already the cell phones were all jammed and um so ps express of course that service was canceled nobody was going out on the water nobody was crossing borders nobody was crossing the straits i mean even though it was the san juan islands you weren't going across the straits so um uh so i was stuck in port townsend for those first two weeks my brother was okay his building wasn't above the floors that were above the bundesbank the uh, bundesbank protected the floor he was on from the the most severe uh impact of the explosions but uh you know he was there in it and we had radio wave he had one of those early aol things that's like a blackberry but it isn't it's the pre thing that went on radio waves oh so we were able to bypass cell and know that he was okay and where he was and what was happening and how he was walking out through the debris how Mm -hmm. they were digging out from the building to get out on the street to get out of there you know that kind of thing and to let him know from where we were what news, what was happening. So I had a bond with Port Townsend that way, and obviously I had just been to the Wind Boat Festival, so I'd been really struck by the charm of that event and the, and the passion and the wonderful spirit of people around those boats and the beauty of Point Hudson, and, um, and have these connections, you know, of my first sail, my end of my circumnavigation and so um, while I was waiting and trying to figure out I didn't have a definite plan and Hossie called me and said hey some friends need somebody to house sit Um, would you want to do it and I said sure 
Cool. Why not? Free place to live for so a while. So I stayed here uh, <laughs> planning to stay until they finished their ocean sailing, and they were in Greenland and Nova Scotia and doing high-latitude high sailing rather in um, the Atlantic. And uh, so I ended up doing that, and, and then uh, a few months later, I was Nancy wanted me to do a major refit. We stripped um, Tethy's mast down to nothing, and that gave me my first experiences working with marine trades in this town. So I worked even in the snow. At The boat was hauled at Fleet Marine and worked with electricians and metal workers and riggers and people, uh, painters, um, to re to do some major work on Tethys and while well, Nancy lived in Seattle and um, and again Hossie you know says hey I heard there's a job they need some help over at the Wooden Boat Foundation uh, and the specifically she mentioned the festival and since I'd done university work and developed programs and events in my university work um, and had a marketing a lot of marketing experience I um so I went over to talk to them, and they said, you know, at the time, Chris Gluck was the director, and he and I went for a walk, and when we started the walk, he was talking to me about organizing the faculty presenters. By the end of the walk, he was asking me to coordinate the whole festival. And, really? And I, and I did, and we went through, I mean... So you started that, that all in 2002 was the first I started, year? My first one was 2002, yep. and I started that one in March. Wow. So for the September festival. <laughs> exactly. Which you know, it's sort of like what I said about my niece. I would if she described the boat that she was gonna go on, I'd say, No if if somebody told me that they had an opportunity to run the wooden boat festival and they were getting this job in March and I mean the end of March. Um, I would say no you know, yeah. but I didn't know any better and we're gonna pause this for just a second while the sirens go. Okay, we're back. The sirens are gone. Uh, see, Casey, I think we were talking about the, uh, you were beginning to become the, uh, or you were becoming the, did become the director for the Port Townsend Wooden Boat Festival in 2002. Yes. So you did that, did you do that for 10 years? I, I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> That's amazing. Amazing. I mean, people, at the time, there was a woman named Ann Greer who just did such a great job she was the only person when I started who did the festival for more than a year and she did it for five and everyone loved Anne and her files I tell you she was an angel she uh, the I, I was given one tiny file with a few notes to do my job and uh, my approach has always been you know with the events to go to the people who um not necessarily ran the event, but the people who experience the event, the people who participate in it. I went to the visitor center and just said, how do, how do people even find out about the Wooden Boat Festival? And when do you start getting inquiries? When do we need to let you know things that would help you in, in providing information to the, to the general public? And uh, so, so I didn't need a, a file folder to necessarily tell me how to do the job necessarily. Um, I mean, I would have. It would have been nice to have more than I had, but what I found in the in the course of those that first wooden boat festival, uh, sometimes a little late, but still, every time I found one of Ann Greer's files, I was super grateful. Love that woman and yeah. her husband Jay. Yeah. So, yeah. 
anyway, um, yeah, so I, I, I ran, I coordinated the event that year and um, then began to do some marketing for them. Then they hit a financial um, disaster. Um, I was a part-time stipend staff at the time, um, and the board needed to make a, a super major adjustment. The, they were just about to go bankrupt, and they didn't hadn't. They kind of snuck up on them. And so, in March the next year, um, or in 2004, uh, I actually became interim executive director in a reorganization of the Wooden Boat Foundation. And um, we, so I did both the festival and the whole organization. Wow, I didn't and, know that. Um, we all pulled it out. This is an incredible community, and there was a, there were some really super hardworking, generous board members, competent, capable people, um, and you know people didn't want that organization to die, and and they came up. They stepped out with money. They stepped out with volunteer time, and they stepped out with things we could turn around and sell at our swap meet. Um, in fact, Freya's. Um, Diane, uh, Diane Roberts was on the rowing team, and at that, I'll never forget, it was the first time she'd come in the Cupola House building, and she said, I'm not even into wooden boats, really. And they they had the wooden ho- pococks that they were working on, but she was falling in love with them because they were working on them. And the whole experience of sanding them and the, knowing the history and learning it and then feeling that music the, the music of the of the you know that special thing we have with wooden boats uh, really struck her and um, and I'll never forget her being one of the people who came in uh, among many many people um, who just said I'll, we'll do whatever we can and they had a garage sale uh, her and the tough as nails gals and um, some of the other rowers at of the time at that time and they gave us the cash that I needed to to make payroll the first two weeks they didn't give it to us it was a loan within the bookkeeping you know they said now we want this back when you get this organization turned around but you know that's the kind of generosity that's the kind of initiative that's the kind of commitment you and passion you find in people here and and so um so i served as interim executive director for that six months and then um literally took myself off the payroll and set it up so that for the next six months there would be part-time we could we could afford to get through the winter keep the doors open and then until the program revenue season started again in March the next year because then people would start paying us for kids sailing classes and festival sponsorships and things so cash flow would be and and during that winter we also did the due diligence for the merger with the Northwest Maritime Center and I was on that committee, um, meeting secretly or not so secretly. I think, you know, anybody who was suspicious who watched the same six people going to one boat in Boat Haven <laughs> late in the evening <laughs> for two weeks straight, you know, kind yeah, of thing, figured out realize, something was going on. But we were. I didn't realize there was a merger of those two organizations at one point. Well, it's it's one of those uh, lawyers and accountants figure out you know the exact term for it um in my mind the merger was like a marriage it was two entities each with what they each brought to it and they were better by being together and if they had a hyphenated or an ampersand long name then so what um my partner has a different name and at the time dave robinson's partner had you know wife had a different name and so 
we could handle this long Northwest Maritime Center and Wooden Boat Foundation, but, you know, um, technically we really needed to merge efforts so the administration costs would be less, so the effort would be more coordinated. Um, You know, as marriages are not always easy with culture clashes, you know, one person wants to spend money and one person wants to save it. Yeah. Uh, One person thinks you need the, you know, the Rolls Royce and the other person says no we don't I've been driving a clunker since I was born you know <laughs> right yeah there's and, differences you, you know so yeah. we had culture clashes and I think um, a lot of people knew about those and participated in the in the discussions over the years and over 10 years of festival I know I I sort of uh, I served as managing director of the Northwest of the, of the combined organization for three years and uh, with programs and retail and operations and uh, staff hiring and everything but the capital campaign and um, for the new building for the new building yeah. and um, I mean I, I helped as as in the ways that I could as far as trying as best we could to make the building work and to include ideas from the wooden boat side and the um, community trades and but um it was a big job it was a it became a much bigger project um by the end it was 14.2 million i think wow and uh it really didn't start out to be that big and uh we have a you know an incredibly flexible facility now in a prime spot of waterfront yeah, and absolutely at the gorgeous. entrance to point hudson and i'm Fabulous really thrilled about facility. that what a cool place. And I, and I think it's more diverse now than it probably would have been if we would have stayed as narrow as we started. But right. um, but it's the wooden boats themselves and the marine trades. This whole scene down here at Boat Haven, um, you know, to me, this is the, the this is the vibe. This is the. Um, it's kind of the heartbeat. It really is the, the heartbeat of the wooden boat. It really is community, isn't it? It really is. Yeah. You know, I think we we used to have that <clears throat> in um, the Cupola House because it was old. It was an, it was a historic old building, and because of the history of how people had fought so hard to get that, you know, to get in there. Is that in the where first place. Uh, Carol is and and Tosti? Or, uh, they are in the what's called the Armory. Okay. In you know the historical names, but everybody calls it the Sail Off Building. Yeah. Um, but the sail what's loft the, above. The, what was the cupola house then? Cupola house is the little commander's officer's quarters that's at the head of the harbor. Oh, okay. And Where the foundry used to be. The okay. foundry is in there now. Oh, they are. Okay, they're in there now. The PT, right. that PT used to foundry be... is in there now, and that's where the WBF was for 16 years. Right. Okay. Now so I remember. Yeah. The foundation, the first festival office was actually in there where PS Express is. So it, it's that little building that Pygmy was in that um, uh, th- that's where the first desk was for um, like the great story from Libby Palmer, um, who with her husband Hank was in the Demors was you know founder at the Marine Science Center and at the boat school Northwest School when boat building uh, Libby told me a great story of them driving into town and that's where the office was and it was the I think the third wooden boat festival and uh, and the the gal was working in there the coordinator at that time um, the offices were the idea was born in the boat shop that's now Steve Chapin's mm. Point Hudson boat shop yeah 
the idea really was born in there and then so Point Hudson has a lot of places that are really hold the memory and you know because of the way I was raised where I that five generation thing you know place is real important to me history is really important to me I think it it's as the as the um, in this book that I'm writing now and working on which really started as a out growth of my research about my boat here I think what I found is that the purchase of the boat for me in 2007 really represented my sort of making a choice of the values the pieces of the organization and our efforts here that I wanted to drill into the most make the most deep connection to so by owning a wooden boat myself I I was closer than I had ever been in understanding the um, both the the craftsmanship, you know, uh, and the and the history side of, of wooden boats, but also the 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 business of it, um, the values of it. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying that people who have fiberglass boats or steel or aluminum or ferro cement, for goodness sakes, don't have some of that too. But there's something about in uh, there's something about wood the way it holds the memory. Yeah. The way, you know, the grain, when my mast was out at Haven Boatworks this winter, um, to a person, and as I mentioned to you in the start-up to this, that is the same wood that was in Pacific Grace, is in Pacific Grace um, in Canada. Uh, it's not the original mast from Denmark. These bird's mouth masts? This one is, this one is a bird's mouth boom yeah. construction. Uh, the... The mast is actually made of 12 parts laminated together. It does have a hollow part of okay. it, but it's mm-hmm. tapered, mm-hmm. teardrop, elliptical, and oh, tapered wow. at the top. Wow. So it's an extremely complex RD mast. And yeah. it was actually in the Emily Carr Center in Victoria as an art project as Dirk finished it. Wow. So he started building it while on the side <clears> in the shipyard while at Pacific Grace was being built. And he finished it in the Emily Carr Center as an art project. Cool. So it's not original, but the, it's old growth fir. Oh, and cool. so, what I was—the link there was to, for me—is that anyone who looks at that, it's like if you look at an old piece of furniture, you know, really old antiques that, that have that have a lot of craftsmanship involved. You can set those in your living room, and and I've said to people who don't understand, say in Oklahoma, why wooden boats? And I'll say, you know, and I've pointed out a piece of furniture that they have, and I said, is there anybody in your that ever walks into your house? that doesn't mention something about that piece of furniture. And they said no. They'll say no. Not if it's that stunning. Not if it's the, when the craftsmanship is there yeah. and the right. old wood is there. There's something about it that you can that, that, that you can feel that really resonates with people. And, you know, beyond that, there is that wildly cool thing that happens of the sound of water yeah. on the hull yeah. that totally I heard about. Never, never really believed, but now having a wooden boat, I'm like, oh my God, they are so right. It is a musical instrument sound. It does resonate with sounds like yeah. woodwinds to me. Yeah. So, Casey, let's spend the last couple minutes here. Just tell us more about the boat we're on here, the PAX, which is a yep. spit scatter. Yep. Uh, you bought it in 2007. Give me a few more details about the boat and a little bit of history. Well, the, the boat was built in 1936 in Denmark. That's before World War II, that when Hitler rolled into Denmark. In, he was there, and, and the Germans occupied in, from 40 to 45. 
So she was built at a time when um, the Depression worldwide was happening, where families were trying to spend more time. This is an old, uh, it, it's, it's a design, it's a race boat adaptation of an old lifeboat fishing boat hull. So Denmark is famous for this really curvy boats. Uh, you see the Norwegian lifeboats and all of the Colin Archers and Atkins and double enders that we all, these Perry boats that so many of us love in this country. And that people, ocean going sailors love the double enders for that seaworthy, buoyant thing and the beaminess. Um, but in Denmark, they were really trying to get families out. They had dragons and one designs and all these skinny, long, open boats. And they were incredibly tippy and wet and uncomfortable. And their families, and I, you know, it wasn't all just guys racing, because there were definitely women out racing those boats as well. But in an effort to reach out to families, and in, when it, the, the economy was not good in Denmark, the sailing clubs got together and they had a competition to design a boat that would be low cost to produce, have class, you know, some basics to it that are all the same, and that would be a racing boat. So. She's 28 feet long, and the mast is 51 feet high. Yeah. Wow. The way your eyes bugged. That is, the Tethys that I sailed around the world on is 38 feet, 46 overall, 51 foot mast. Wow. So it's a, my main on packs is bigger than Tethys' main. How many square feet of sail on this boat? Uh, 45 square meters. Okay. is the class mm -hmm. and that is based on the square square meters of sail area the the mast is 18 the boom is 18 feet long and the luff on this main is 42 feet so 42 by 18 whatever that is for the main it's huge yeah so she's made they're made to move the they were made made to sail in the area called the Orison sea between denmark and sweden it's it looks exactly like our bay out here and the islands Sweden in the distance looks like the Olympics over there and um, the San Juans and Gulf Islands are similar distances to a lot of the Norwegian islands and Swedish islands that you can sail to from Denmark so the 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 wind and weather conditions are very similar you know how we just have such light winds here a lot of the time so you just have a super reefed boat that can move that's very buoyant and safe if it gets rough, and you have a boat that can move in very, very, very light winds. How many reef points so, on the main? I have two. Okay. Uh, pretty big? A 30 and a 60 percent. Oh, oh. Yeah, so I've got a, a So you can a get 60. her way down if you yeah. need to. Yeah. So the, so the boat was built. Um, I, the, in, the, in the book, I, I'm, I explain sort of the history, you know, how I found the history by going back to Denmark twice. Uh, I've been to British Columbia a couple of times and down in California. In fact, I'm leaving. That's why I couldn't meet with you next week. And I'm going down there to meet with the people who owned her from 1974 to 76. Oh, really? Yeah. Fun. So I've been, I, I have <clears throat> met and um, either the family of, like I've interacted with the woman who, whose father owned the boat from 1938 to 46. And she was a little girl sitting on this companionway in a life ring that the couple that I'm going to meet in California still have. Oh, really? So what, what's, what's amazing to me and has been so cool and I think goes along too with why we get hooked on wooden boats is that um, the, the, the passion that 
that that that woman who's now in her 70s has for this boat is the same as I have is the same as the Canadian woman who took the boat from California where the interior had been burned out and she looked like a, a longboat the cabin was gone the main the mast the engine the rudder were gone it looked like a longboat when she took it and what she did for 14 years was rebuild this wow. cabin I put she in the cockpit, I did the, me and me and uh, Diana Talley, my shipwright here in town, did the uh, cockpit and the interior that's there now, but I have pictures of the, during, after the fire in Sausalito um, that the shipwright took that was going to rebuild it, and he wasn't able to do it, and, and that, but, but these, the passion, like, the, the, the attraction we've all had to her stern I saw you, Frida, taking pictures. Uh, Freya taking pictures of her. I love, I love the way that rudder is kind of when it's off to the side like that. It just it looks like it's you know it's it's diagonal to yeah. the stern. Yeah. Unlike a traditional boat. Yeah. I love the lines. It's it's a it, and it's a really interesting thing. I I've got the lines set now for winter, but you know if we untied her, she starts to drift forward. It's the weirdest thing. It's like this boat is built like weighted to go forward she will want to go forward um and she probably wouldn't literally do it because she's got all this keel is it's going to all depend on where the current is but the point is that she wants that the the way they designed these is so um it's very feminine it's very universal in its feeling of um stability nurtures in a way of like um you feel safe stepping on the boat. You know, a lot of boats you step on and it's pretty tippy. And she's little, so you would kind of expect mm-hmm. it to be more tippy, and she's just not. There's 1,600 pounds of lead down there. Yeah. And a seven-ton displacement. But um, but the the same love, that appreciation for the craftsmanship and design, the passion for the boat, this feelings of love for this boat... Have truly, I found them in people who had the boat in the you know 30s in Denmark, the 70s in Canada. I mean, 70s in California, the 80s in Canada. It's the same way I feel now. I, I think it's it, it's um, the the book is called Finding Packs, and and that you know it's it's my search for her history, but it's also this this peace that we feel and. And with these boats and and how that does transcend time and country and um, and survives the traumas that many of us go through when we have them because we all have our ups and downs yeah you know financially these boats can be very demanding yeah I bet. and uh, you know um, but the rewards as long as the rewards are still worth it, you know, we all stay in it. And yeah, then exactly. and then your job is to get it to the next person, yeah. um, usually with more money than you. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and, and that's how they go. And, and here she is after all these years from 1936 to now. Beautiful um, boat. Still sailing, still beautiful. The hull, much of what's in the hull is the same wood that Carl Thompson hand-sawed in 1935 and six in Denmark. What species woodish is the hull? The the uh, the frames are oak, and the um, planks are what's called larch. Hmm. 
So they are um, a very dense, pitchy. I actually had on the boat, and I've taken it off for during Wind Boat Festival. I keep a chunk of the of one of the planks because they're an inch and a quarter thick, and they're so pitchy still, um, naturally, from these uh, Scandinavian oak trees that are just incredible. We we can't get wood like that here. Interesting. It's not that old, and it's not that. And that pitch Thick. makes that makes that stuff last forever. It does. It's yeah. it's it's virtually you know it's virtually rot proof except for where iron <clears throat> sickness gets in. And you know in those days they were fastening with iron. And where they used copper, it's fine. It's easy to replace that. But where they used iron, the iron corrodes and poisons the wood around it, softens it. Water can get in and fresh water and wood. You know what happens. That's where you spend your money. <laughs> that's exa- that's the only place I've spent money besides yeah. the fire. Yeah. And you know the fire is uh, was a was a tragic uh, part of her history. Um, you know the jinx with name changes. Um, her name was actually changed to Firecrest in 1938. To what? And to Firecrest. Oh really? And then there was a fire. <laughs> in 1984. Wow. So, I think I've I think I've tracked down her original name, and when I can confirm that for sure without a shadow of a doubt, then um, I'll make that decision whether she stays Pax going forward or or yeah. returns to her original name. Um, you know, sort of getting jinxed with peace isn't a bad thing. <laughs> I didn't change her name. It was, that was her name when I got her. Peace? Yeah. Oh. Pax is, Pax is uh, Latin for peace. Oh, okay. Okay. So, uh, the name really meant a lot to me in in buying her. Um, it wasn't the only reason, obviously, that I bought her, because it was the stern and the buoyancy, the... And this much volume. I mean, you guys do have to come below because you won't believe a 28-foot boat can actually have this much room. Yeah. It's crazy. The beam is 9.6, but it's the, the, the shape, the roundness, gives such volume down below that you, you I can have eight people down there and you don't yeah, feel like it. it's, it's crazy. So. Really cool. So when are you coming out with your book, Casey? Do you have a date or? Well, uh, you know, that's always the good question. Uh, you know. My hope had been to get it ready in a year, and every book writer I know, author, and serious literary person goes, what? Are you kidding? You know, people spend five to ten years writing books, and books write themselves. So, uh, part of my, so I'm hoping that I'll have it by next Wooden Boat Festival. Cool. And I think think that's more realistic, because the, the research that I've gotten done in the last two years has been... A huge part of the story, and and there are still these two very important pieces. One that I sh- hope to discover in the, this month while I'm down in California, and the other is with one more trip to Denmark to find who I think is uh, the original owner of this boat. And I am pretty sure that that man um, uh, drowned, and that he probably never got to see her launch. Wow. And. Um, but but I'm 99.9% sure that he, he was the one who had this boat built. Um, she matches every spec, and his boat that he registered one year disappears and isn't anywhere ever again. And uh, 
and and that's the same time period that I'm missing on this boat. So I'm pretty sure I, I found his gravesite and his family names back there. I just need to go spend some more time some more research finding, there. hopefully finding relatives yeah. who may have pictures and who might still be living that would remember their grandfather's boat. Very cool, very cool. So. Well, it's been really fun having you on the podcast today, Casey. Yeah. Uh, any parting comments you'd like to make to our listeners in addition to maybe giving your blog address? Well, I, all I want to say is thanks for, for doing this, for doing all the work you're doing, getting the word out. Um, obviously, I'm hooked on wooden boats, so I thought that was a great name. I was like, <laughs> Thank you. I saw it long before I met you okay. um, because of the name. So, uh, being an addict, like, yeah, <laughs> like yeah, you, you get addicted I'm and there's no looking back. <laughs> glad to be part of it. Um, I, I do something called Woman of the Wind blog, um, and it's woman singular only because the women URL was already taken. Mm. Um, my name of my dissertation, PhD dissertation, was Women of the Wind. Okay. So there's a connection to it back there. Um, but uh, but I just, my name, caseycronkite.com, is my main URL for okay. everything that I do. And, and that includes, you know, doing whatever I can to work with wooden boat entities worldwide. So I'm going to be speaking in involved with the Hobart Festival in Australia in February, and I'm going to Auckland, New Zealand. Oh, really? Um, working with the folks there with the Classic Boat Festival in Auckland <laughs> because they're trying to, you know, like we've done here, um, you know, worldwide waterfronts are uh, under pressure from de- for development, and boat yards are under pressure to clean up their environmental act uh, to um manage expenses that go with running marine trades businesses and and those of us who own boats uh, know that some of us from both sides being in the trades and having a boat Um, so my work continues to be in with I've got involved with things in Denmark in France um, in Netherlands um, obviously with the folks at Wooden Boat Magazine um I just saw a great video of the Gothenburg, the Swedish ship. I just posted that on my my personal Facebook page this morning. Oh, really? So I've got cool. a, a Facebook page for Spitzgotter Packs that I just started before Wooden Boat Festival. Oh, cool. Um, okay. In addition to my personal Facebook page as well. But okay. anything, you know, any of us can do. We, you know, we all, any of us, what is the phrase about floating all boats, you know? Yeah, um, right. The better any of us do, the better all of us do. And, and, the, and the issues we're facing worldwide are, are much more the same mm-hmm. than not. And I think our most of our dreams and visions are the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't want to be polluters of yeah. the ocean that we love. Yeah. Um, but we're trying to figure out how we can do it affordably. Right. So, right. Uh, um, anyway, so good Very luck good. with your well, projects. Thanks. Appreciate and it, Casey. So, it. womanofthewind.com. CaseyCronkite.com or, cre- or, Casey or Woman of the Wind will, okay. should redirect as well. So. Okay, very good. Okay, thanks a lot, Casey. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Okay. Thanks, Casey, for doing that interview. It was really fun to meet you in Port Townsend and get the tour of your boat, the packs, and hear more about your history and your story with wooden boats. Really fun stuff. Thank you very much. And Casey is also coming out with a book later this year or next year on the history of her boat. It's called Finding Pack, so stay tuned for that also. Please connect with me if you can, uh, or if you would like to, or actually I would like for you to. 
connect with me, you can email me, dan at hookedonwoodenboats.com. You can subscribe to my e-news letter, hookedonwoodenboats.com forward slash subscribe. You can leave comments on my blog. You can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Pinterest if you look for Wooden Boat Dan. And you can call my voicemail feedback hotline at 424-261-2360. Thanks again for tuning in today. Just like to give a shout out to some of my new friends through Hooked on Wooden Boats. I got a lot of new friends, but I'd like to say hi to Corey and Christina down in Florida. Brian in Arlington, who's faithfully listening every week. Anders in Poland. Oleg, I don't know where you live, but thanks for your support. Anyway, folks, have a great week. Keep the bright side up and the barnacle side down. This is Wooden Boat Dan, over and out. We'll talk again soon.